It's really sort of a very, very strange political pattern we're seeing. Welcome back to the Facts About PAX podcast. I'm your solo host today, Adam Delmar. And this one's going out to all you PAC professionals out there. The 2024 election cycle is now officially underway. On Tuesday of this week, November 7th, the off-year elections concluded. And while it was a good night for Democrats, none of the races were an up-or-down decision on President Biden or former President Donald Trump. Coming up in a minute, a political snapshot and expert analysis from Jim Ellis about the implications for American politics heading into 2024. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAPPA activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And now, it's time once again for the Ellis Insight. Jim Ellis, welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. Well, Adam, thank you so much. It's always my pleasure to be with you. You know, I want to start right where we should. The top line, Jim Ellis, what's to know about Tuesday's election results? You know, I think things are getting a little bit out of hand on the analysis of this election because the the spin, even coming from Republicans, and if you saw the, the presidential debate, they were all talking about what a disaster election Tuesday night was. And if you look at the numbers, it really wasn't all that bad. I mean, let's take what happened here. We've got a Democratic governor in Kentucky being reelected with uh, just about 52 percent of the vote. And we're talking about Andy Bashir. I want to make sure everyone's clear. Yeah. I mean, Kentucky, yes, is a red state at the federal level, but they tend to elect Democratic governors. So a, a governor, a Democratic governor, and particularly an incumbent, winning re-election in that state is is not unusual based upon the voting trends of that state. Then you go down to Mississippi and the Republican governor was re-elected and once again overperformed what the polling was suggesting there. So there's one-to-one in terms of uh, victories. Now we come to Virginia, which is really sort of the, the, the bell mark, if you will, of this election in terms of the analysis that this was a big defeat for Republicans. Well, let's look at the final tallies here. The Democrats didn't gain any seats in the state Senate. It's now 21 Democrats and 19 Republicans. That's not a landslide. And in the House, it's it's coming to uh, 51 Democrats and 49 Republicans because some of the later elections went the Republicans way. So this is not a landslide. And keep in mind, this is a redistricting map designed and pushed through by the courts. And it was designed to favor the Democrats by about the way it turned out. So it's not really some type of big rejection of Republicans here. Now let's go up to New York. In New York, we had for the first time in 20 years, a Republican won a seat from the Bronx on the New York City Council. Well, that's the first time that's happened in 20 years. On Long Island in Suffolk County, which is, of course, the far eastern county of Long Island, the Republican with 56% of the vote took over the county executive's position. And for the first time in decades, you now have Republicans in control of the entire Long Island local government with Nassau and Suffolk County. Al D'Amato was interviewed by the New York Post and said, this is actually a political earthquake that happened on Long Island. And keep in mind, in 2022, what happened then? Republicans won all the seats there. 
So they they carry through. So this to me is not some disastrous election for the Republicans. And I think some of the most difficult criticism or the most over the top criticism of the Republican performance is actually coming from Republicans because the expectations were again set too high, particularly in the Virginia elections. And when you look at the results on those Virginia delegate and state Senate races, most of those were very close. So we're talking about a couple thousand votes statewide that delivered this majority of basically one seat in both houses to the Democrats. So uh, to me, this is not some rejection of the Republicans. Could they have done a better job? Yeah, arguably, yes. But I think we're way out over our skis in terms of uh, trying to say that this is some big Democratic wave from the 2023 elections. It it really isn't. If anything, once again, and the thing that isn't being covered, as it wasn't in 2022, is that it was a big incumbents night. And if we go back to the 2022 election, if you look at the governors and senators, there were 56 of them that ran for re-election in 2022, and 55 of them won. And now we add two more to that in Kentucky and Mississippi. So if anything, it's a strange phenomenon we're in because when you look at polling on issues and where people think the country and the states are headed, it's all wrong track. Yet what do the people do when they go into the voting booth? They're reelecting all the incumbents. So it just is, it's really sort of a very, very strange political pattern we're seeing where people are not happy with the way things are going. They're in, in a state of discontent. Yet they turn around and go vote and reelect all the people that are running the show. It's hard to explain. So this is why we go beyond the headlines and why we seek expert analysis to help us understand not just what happened, but what the trends are and what it might portend as we all in the political advocacy space think about how tight elections and how meaningful work on issues really are. So I think what we've taken away so far in our conversation with you, Jim Ellis, is that a good Tuesday night in November 2023 might not say as much as some would think about prospects for that same November Tuesday in 2024. Well, we certainly can take something from this election because, as I mentioned, where you are you have an electorate that's in the state of discontent, yet they're going into the polls and reelecting all the incumbents that presumably put us in this state. But that tells us one very important thing, and that says that the Republican alternative to the Democratic leadership, i.e. President Biden, is not good enough to overturn him. So that is a big message to the Republicans, that their message still isn't connecting enough with the electorate, I think, to make some change. So if you could take anything from this election, you would still say the Republicans need to better refine that message. But it's not a disaster. It's not a disaster that some people are talking about. And again, it's it's mostly not even from the media. It's from Republicans themselves. And if you listen to the debate, they were all over how badly the Republicans did in that election. And I was saying to myself, what numbers are they looking at? I mean, it just wasn't as bad as they're making it out to be. And they need to change the narrative on that. But they also need to, again, continue to understand the message and how to deliver that because it definitely is not resonating. And that that very well may be a precursor for 2024. There has been much written and said in the last two days before our discussion here on the Facts About PACs, the number one 
Pack Podcast in America, Jim Ellis, that Ohio pointed up some very important issues. Not that people didn't know that these issues were important, but how important, how salient. Well, we had two ballot initiatives there, one on abortion and one on uh, legalization of marijuana. And both of them passed with about 55% of the vote. Frankly, I thought the pro-abortion side would do a little even better than that. And if you look at the county returns, you know, you can draw that corridor right down I-71 there from Cleveland to Columbus to Cincinnati. And that was all of the votes there that were the color blue they used to determine a yes vote on the those two propositions. And the rest of the state was red to signify the no vote. So that's, again, the situation that we see around the country where you've got the cities dominating certain positions on one way and the rural areas the other. And so, again, I think the Republicans have to define that message better on the abortion issue. On marijuana, you know, that's been the pattern we've seen around the country there, that even in conservative states, that's being uh, voted to be legalized. So we'll see if they like the consequences for that. I'm not sure Colorado does, but we'll see what we'll see what the Ohioans do after they voted for that. As we think about our audience of employee-funded and business trade association PACs, these are not the issues that anyone is working on, but they are issues that in this political snapshot are out there and will continue to be. There was a first that I think is really worth noting from Tuesday night. Former Biden White House aide is to become the first African-American member of Congress from the state of Rhode Island. You want to share anything about this election victory? Gabe Amo is a veteran of both the Biden and Obama administrations, and he is the first African-American that will represent Rhode Island in the U.S. House. Uh, he won easily in, in a heavily Democratic seat. He really won the seat back in the primary on September 5th. And this was created, this vacancy, because the congressman there, David Cicilline, decided to resign because he accepted a position in the nonprofit world. So he left at the beginning of June, and they were able to schedule this election to replace him. Amo was able to come through about a 12-person Democratic primary, and once he did that, he became the nominee. But again, it was a plurality victory of only in the 30s. But he'll secure this seat, and it will remain with him. So he'll have to run again, of course, in the regular term like everybody else. But he he should have a safe seat now, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how he begins his uh, legislative career. We always think about the folks who are doing work before they become elected officials. Perhaps they're candidates that people who listen to this show are looking at or think are aligned with them. And every bit of local elections leads us to statewide and federal elections. And I wanted to note also that uh, the state of Pennsylvania in the city of Brotherly Love has elected its first female mayor. Yes. And again, this is Sherelle Parker, and she was an at-large city councilwoman before. And she basically won this back in the primary as well. I think that was May primary. And uh, she but she came to office on more of a law and order platform. And so we'll see if she can make some changes there. They recently had, as we remember, some just a couple of weeks ago with ransacking of more stores in downtown Philadelphia. That's exactly the thing that she was running against. So now that she'll actually have a chance to do something about this when she takes office, um, maybe we'll see some improvement in, in um, security, at least in downtown Philadelphia. 
I wouldn't be doing my job on this podcast if I didn't get you to weigh in on the issue of turnout, right? Understanding what takes place in every election. You've been with us for years. You've been a constant voice of understanding and analysis of these issues in Washington for decades. Was this a high turnout, low turnout, regular turnout? What does it tell us, if anything, as we look at 24? The Kentucky and Mississippi numbers were about exactly what they were the last time these two candidates were on the ballot, which was 2019. So the turnout there was a normal turnout for these types of elections. The Virginia elections, I have to do further analysis on this, but it looks like it was much higher. And that would be really consistent with how much money was spent on both sides. This was a record year of spending. I mean, they're spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 million on a couple of these state Senate races. That's never been been the case before. So when you have that much campaign activity, seeing a higher turnout is not particularly surprising. And I think we did see that. Now, again, I have to go back and actually look and compare those numbers to what we've seen in the past. But it looks very high to me in terms of, of turnout. But you had not only the uh, Democrats running up their turnout machine, but Governor Yunkin was spending huge amounts of money out of the super PAC that he has to try to drive turnout on the Republican side. And I'd have to say, I think both sides actually succeeded in that. And uh, as I said, it turned out that the Democrats won by a relatively small margin, which is frankly what you would expect from a Virginia electorate in the last couple of decades. I mean, we've seen Virginia really become a Democratic state. And it's not particularly surprising to see those election results. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the end, we're talking about the reelection of a Democrat governor in the Republican state of Kentucky. And we're seeing Democratic legislature embodied here in Virginia, where the senators are both Democrats and the Republican governor. And it makes me think broadly about all the work that everyone does, because some of these elections, higher turnout or not, are still tight, tight, tight. Yes. And, and don't forget sort of the re- Republican performance of the local level in New York. That, that's important too in this election. So, but you're absolutely right. These elections are all very close and we can project for 2024 those same types of results. The only thing, Adam, I can predict to you today is that we will have close results in 2024. I, it's hard to say right now who will be having a few more votes than the other side right now, but we can guarantee close elections in uh, certainly at the presidential level, no doubt about that. And then we're going to see a very close U.S. Senate as we have today with a 51-49 margin. It's going to come back somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, uh, the House is right now five seats once we have the final special election in Utah here on November 21st. And it, it could come back that close or frankly, even closer. In this next election, now the second round of redistricting in several of these states, about eight states, hasn't been completed yet. And we'll need to see that final picture before we get a better idea of, of how things may turn out. But I think, I think it's going to be a very, very tight U.S. House with, you know, maybe as many as 50 seats in play for this election. So I think we're going to see a very, very active election cycle with very close results. 
All right, so let me wrap it up with this question to you. The best politicians will tell you that the only poll that matters is on election day. But polling is really important. It's a snapshot. We're taking a snapshot with Jim Ellis today, and it can tell us what happened and a little bit about what we believe will happen. But as we go throughout the year, you and other scholars and people who are working on these issues will look at polls Do you trust the polls? Do we trust the polls? Is there anything that you want to tell us that gives us some caution as we look at them going forward? You know, the head-to-head numbers, I mean, people say, well, some polls miss this or miss that. Uh, Let's take these Mississippi and Kentucky numbers. So we had some closing polls in both states that were showing that about an even race, and it ends up being about 52% for the winner on both sides. Well, that's pretty close. I mean, was it 50-49 the way some of the pollsters were suggesting? No, but it's certainly within that realm. I mean, a poll is not going to be accurate. The the key to it is judging the trends. And the trends were that the challengers in both Mississippi and in Kentucky were closing at the end. And both of them did come within a closer margin than the original polls were showing at the beginning of this late search. So I think those two states were polled correctly. That's head to head on candidates. And I think that's one thing. Now, where I think the polling has been a bit off is on the issues and particularly abortion. The polling has missed what a driver that abortion is as an issue to encourage turnout. And we saw that in 2022. And I think we saw it again in 2023. And polling is suggesting when you ask people what's the most important issue, they almost all say, oh, the economy, inflation, all of the economic issues. But those don't appear to be the driver to get people to come out to vote. When they ask about abortion, it's always single digits, you know, between four and eight or nine percent say that's the most important issue. Yet, if you look at clearly what's happening in terms of getting people to come out to vote, that is a big driver. And I think the polling has missed that part of it. That's hard to poll, but I think they've missed that. Well, I would caution all of our listeners who themselves are doing campaigns, fundraising and educational get out the vote. Remember, not everything the winning campaign does is right and not everything the losing campaign does was wrong. It is always a matter of the gray areas and every bit of energy matters and every bit of analysis matters. Jim Ellis, I can't thank you enough for taking all of what you've learned and sharing it with us uh, on this election week. Well, Adam, again, thank you. It's always my pleasure to be with you and all the great folks at NAPAC. And I want to thank everybody downloading and sharing this podcast. If you're not, I hope you will subscribe and meet us right back here next week.